0: Aaron, it seems I hear more often that those with a substance use disorder are also uh, are now also diagnosed with a mental health uh, condition. Are co-occurring disorders the norm or the exception? Co-occurring disorders are are more often than not the norm, and I think actually what's changed over probably the last ten to fifteen years is there's really been. Um, an increase in understanding of how substance use disorders and co-occurring disorders really kind of work together and operate in the same way. There are some folks that come in and they really start using substances as a way to cope with their anxiety, their trauma histories, their depression, um, even some paranoia. And then what we see is, um, you know, that that coping strategy works, and then the brain changes, and then you know they're dependent on the substance. Um, it can also go the other way where someone might be using uh, something like cannabis and then they start to develop these psychiatric issues. So it's really very rare that we see what we would call kind of your garden variety alcoholic. Um, I would say, you know, many people coming in, um, especially with trauma histories, we're seeing a lot more of that um, and and really, you know, very difficult Time coming off the substance and managing the co-occurring disorders because that substance is really kind of what glued them together. So making sure that um, you know if you're working with a healthcare provider that it's somebody who um, has some awareness about substance use disorders and mental health disorders. Because if not, you can really kind of get funneled into a system that might not be um, sort of the best option to help you manage both the co-occurring disorders. Aaron, I I have found that that sometimes when my son is is sharing something that he's struggling with uh with me, um I find myself struggling and and sort of overthinking um about the best way to support him, about what to say, about what not to say. When should I just shut up and listen? You know, it's very much that that eggshell experience. What do you suggest? Um, uh, for for parents in, in that kind of position uh, uh, to how to best suss out sort of the best route to be supportive? That's a great question. And my answer is so simple. Ask them what they need. So um, I have grown up around recovery, as I mentioned. And so my mother, who I, I love dearly, when I go to her with a problem, she asks me three questions every time. Um, And she'll say, Erin, what do you need from me? Do you need me to just listen? Do you need me to offer a solution? And her third option is, do you want me to co sign your stuff? So she has really empowered me to be able to tell her what I need. Because sometimes your child may come to you and they just want to vent. They just want mom or dad to listen. They don't want therapy talk. They don't want Alan on talk. They just want you to listen. But as a parent, like we go into problem solving mode and we're like, all right, how do we offer a solution? How do we make this better for them? Um, and we kind of overanalyze it ourselves. So do they just want you to listen? And then if not, do you want me to offer a solution? The solution I offer might not be the solution that you want to hear, but I'm willing to come alongside you and, and, you know, kind of, um, help to support you in this. And then the third one is always, you know, she always is to co-sign your stuff, which is sometimes. Your child comes to you knowing that what they're coming to you with is just insanity, and they just want you to agree with them. The caveat to that always is, I'm going to come back to you at another time when you're more open to hearing, or you're more, uh, you know, um, in a in a more solid space, and and get and tell you like kind of the truth about that. Own my truth with that. Um, so it's simple. What do you need? Do you want me to listen? Do you want me to offer suggestions? Or do you want me to co-sign your stuff? And then whatever the outcome is. Have the parent also having their support system too to go to and say, we just had this interaction. This is what happened. This is how I felt in the interaction and get support outside of your child. Erin, uh, I've read that opioid overdoses and deaths are still at record levels. Um, I think largely that's because of the pro proliferation of fentanyl. And I'm wondering, um, is it harder to treat people with opioid use disorders than people who come in with um, other substance use disorders like alcohol or other drugs? That's a great question. And actually, I was speaking with somebody at um, work about this recently. And what we're actually seeing is less opiate use disorder folks coming into treatment which makes us curious if um you know they're uh, you know overdosing as a result of the fentanyl in the um in the opiates so i think from a treatment perspective that's certainly a concerning part of it you know we're not seeing as many opiate use disorder people coming in into treatment um the question is it harder i think there are some medication assisted treatments that um, might make recovery more sustainable for long-term opiate use disorder folks. And I would say in the 12-step recovery community, there's certainly more acceptance about things, about medication-assisted treatment. Um, you know, it's, it's usually the opiate use disorder folks are on the younger end of the spectrum also, and, and there's just a lot of lifestyle pieces that come along with opiate use disorder, um, there's a lot of social connections, there's a lot of emotional dysregulation and, and detox can be very uncomfortable for opiate use disorder folks. Um, so I think it's really a combination of all those things. It's age, it's withdrawal, it's lifestyle. Um, and then it's also you know, the um, social aspect that comes along with it. But I would say in general, um, we've seen less folks coming into residential treatment for opiate use disorder. Now, could they be doing an outpatient program where they can get on some medication-assisted treatment? Absolutely. Um, but but yeah, I would say it's fair to say that that uh, long-term sobriety can be more difficult for opioid use disorder folks. Erin, I understand that in tr- uh, many treatment programs, you have individuals who are often separated by their gender and by their age group. So is that because the treatments are different for them? And do you find that one group is more likely to be successful than the other? Yeah, that's a great question also. Um, so what I would say is that in terms of the age components, there is benefit to having young adults together because they're they're sort of um, emotionally closer in age. um they're They're often still very reliant on family. Um, they're often still in school. They're kind of just like in the same um, kind of spot in their life. I have seen though that there are some younger folks who, you know, um, when they're with older patients, they their maturity level steps up. Um, sometimes the older patients get more annoyed with the younger patients. But in general, I think having them separated by age as much as possible is helpful. Um, you then get age-appropriate privileges. Um, you get, uh, age appropriate access to cell phones, to laptops. Um, we can help kind of talk through and work through some of those impulsivities and, um, really just, you know, kind of normal developmental challenges that come in early recovery. The gender piece has gotten really interesting, um, with a lot of programs, um, working closely with the LGBTQIA plus folks. Um, So actually, what we're doing, what many programs are doing is they're moving more towards a gender affirming program as opposed to biological gender, um, which I actually really appreciate. Um, We've had many um, trans women on our women's units. Um, Now, that is a place where our younger folks tend to be more accepting. Um, You know, I think about the few that we've had, we've had a a number of them on our young adult women's unit. And it's not ever been an issue. Um, so what I would say is if if you're looking for a program, really looking for something that is gender affirming um, so that, you know, there's a level of comfort, um, treatment issues can be different. Um, but really, you know, we talk a lot, you know, we think about women, we think about parenting issues and shame and guilt. I've worked with men who have the same, you know, how do I be a parent in recovery? I have shame and guilt about how I you know, treated my partner or my children, an active addiction, we see just as much trauma with men and women. Um, so I think that some of the differences are, though, that the men kind of bond in different ways than the women do. Um, definitely gender separate, but affirming treatments so that there can be um, an opportunity for vulnerability and genuine connection and um, just that sort of um, Ability to build support systems that are going to be hopefully long lasting after treatment. So it feels that shaming and blaming is a pretty common um, factor um, within families that are dealing with with addiction and mental health conditions. So um, Can you suggest a better way to address that problem and to try to avoid that when uh, we're trying to get help for everyone in the family? Yeah, and you know, um, I think that if most people talked to one of their friends, they would find that they may be struggling with the same thing or may have struggled with mental health or substance disorders in their families. So not that you need to, you know, wave a flag and run around with it, but I think if you can open uh, dialogue about, you know, having a family member in recovery and and as we start to build that, that shame um, and that tendency towards secrecy can be reduced. I grew up in a family that was in recovery, so I wasn't even aware that like being an alcoholic and being in recovery was something to feel shameful about because it was something that was very well known in our family. Um, and trust me, I would rather go to an Al Anon meeting or an Al Teen meeting or an Alcathon than, you know, have my father getting arrested on Halloween night. Like for me, that was more shameful than saying, Yeah, we don't have alcohol in our house and we're in recovery. Um, you know, so I think it's it's partly opening the dialogue and it's people who are in the process of recovery, whether it's from substance use disorders or mental health, but really, you know, that that you can be an advocate for recovery and and as kind of that um, population grows and we see that people can recover and that it's likely to recover, then I think some of that shame uh, and stigma will reduce. But really, it starts with the folks who are in the program and who have seen the ability to get well and that people are actually much more uh, effective in recovery than they are in active addiction. Erin, recently, I've been hearing so much more discussion about the impact of trauma and how powerful traumatic experiences for the substance abuser play such a large role in understanding how to treat the substance abuser as a patient. Is this just true for a small number of patients or are you seeing it widespread throughout the substance abuse patients that come into you? Yeah, I mean, I've seen it from our you know, teen young adult patients right up through our older adult patients, Um, you know, and I do think that again, this also ties into, there's been more of a marrying between the mental health community and substance use use community. We are also, you know, not siloed. I think probably seven years ago we would have said, oh, get that substance use disorder under control and then we can manage your trauma. The trauma folks would say, or substance use would say, get your trauma treated, then we can address the substance use. But what we're actually finding is the evidence shows that addressing both issues concurrently is really the kind of best way to heal. Um, those groups, you know, uh, are very um, sacred, and they're run on every unit. Again, from younger adult all the way up through our older adult patients. It does also help as the clinician to kind of have a lens to look through to when we look at our patients. So before we might have said they were resistant or they were um, emotionally volatile, but really what we're seeing is those, the ways that they respond are, have really become survival skills for them. You know, we think about someone who has trauma, whether it's early childhood trauma, single incident trauma, they, they develop coping strategies, even if they're um unhealthy, literally to survive life. You know, I, th- I hear about some of the histories of of the men and women that I work with. And I'm like, I don't even know how you're sitting in front of me today. Um, so we really try to take away some of the stigma associated with that because it's truly the only way they've gotten through their life. And then that installation of hope that, yes, you can heal from your substance use disorder. You can heal from your trauma um, and, and that you can sort of you know, have this life worth living with genuine connection and authenticity that everybody wants. That's what we all crave. Erin, thank you very much. Thank you.